The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Last Friday was Pearl Harbor Day, commemorating those lost on December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and pulled the United States into World War II. On that day, we reflect on the stories of those who died and those who survived the attacks. And today's episode is perhaps one of the most unique perspectives on the Pearl Harbor attacks that I bet you'll ever hear, at least in tone. Today we have an oral history from Lieutenant Colonel Besby Holmes, an American World War II fighter ace, meaning that he achieved at least five aerial combat victories in the war. And he was at Pearl Harbor. His oral history of his experience contrasts the more somber tone of many that come out of Pearl Harbor. His experience at Pearl Harbor honestly seems like a string of comedic events, at least the way he told it in this recording. I will recommend headphones for listening to this one. The audio quality of the oral history is okay. You have to remember that this was recorded probably in a hotel room at a fighter aces convention in the 80s or 90s on a tape recorder, very likely. So time has not been kind to that particular medium. Now, a warning to listeners, Holmes, at one point in his oral history, uses an ethnic slur to refer to the Japanese attackers. Since this oral history is itself an artifact, we present it as it was recorded with no cuts, but also acknowledge this use of language. And with no further ado, I will turn you over to Besby Holmes to share his story of Pearl Harbor. Wheeler Field was the main fighter base right in the middle of Oahu, and of course Honolulu was on the southern extremity of Oahu, and that's where everybody from the three services went, Army, Navy, and Marines. We were having a party Saturday night, December 6th. We'd been restricted for 24 hours a day. So you were turned loose. How old were you then? Oh, 23, 4. Oh, you must have felt like belief. <laughs> I'm going to have a good time in town. Teacher let the monkeys out. <laughs> anyway, my tent mate was a cousin of the assistant manager of the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, and he had made arrangements before the alert was called to visit his cousin on this weekend, and he had invited me to join him, and fine, so we went into the Royal Hawaiian. Second lieutenants in 1941 did not stay at the Royal Hawaiian. Our pay was 127 bucks a month. <laughs> anyway, we were the guests of the assistant manager in his suite. And I had a blind date that night with a letter of introduction from some friends here in San Francisco. And we all four went out. Nobody warned me about sweet rum drinks. Sweet rum drinks. One is fine, two is great, three is murder, four is death. <laughs> How many did you have? I don't know. <laughs> That's diplomatic. I woke up the next morning with a horrible headache. I mean, down. With a horrible headache. 
All I could think about was getting up, going to church, get mass out of the way, put my swimming suit on, and get out on the beach and let the sun bake the poison out of my body. No, I was so young, nobody ever told me about Alka-Seltzer to relieve a headache. Anyway, got up, got dressed, went across the street to church, brown pinstripe suit, green wool tie made by the Navajo Indians, I still remember. Praying to God my headache would go away in church. First bombs fell. The church was open all the way around for air circulation. And vines were in the latticework up on the top. Didn't hear any planes approach? Didn't hear any planes. I heard this. I thought the stupid Navy, we called the alert off yesterday. They're still practicing. Oh my God. The sexton ran out on the altar, whispered in the Irish priest's ear. He didn't say anything to the congregation. He just turned up the tempo of the mass. I was having trouble following him. I couldn't stay with him in my missile. Didn't say anything. Mass ended real quick. Walked outside, and here's all the military trucks roaring up and down Calatella Boulevard, miles an hour. We don't know what's going on. I darted across the street to the Royal Hawaiian, got into the hotel room. My buddy, Johnny Voss, and his cousin, the assistant manager, were chasing each other around the room. In the middle of the table, they had a little portable radio saying, the radio announcer was saying, don't get excited, don't get excited. The Japs have attacked Pearl Harbor, but the Army's got the situation well in hand. And I thought, oh dear God, if the rest of the Army feels like me, we're in trouble. My buddy fortunately had presence of mind to put his uniform on. I was still in my brown pinstripe suit. We dashed outside, stopped the first car that went by. We commandeered a civilian's car. The guy says, what do you want, kids? I, we got to get to our air base. We're both pilots. He said, great. And he moved over to the middle. He says, you drive. So I jumped in and I drove his little Studebaker champion by Pearl Harbor. I saw the Arizona side blow out. I saw it sink as we drove by. You mean it already happened. The battle was in full force. It war. was in full force. The Arizona side blew out. We went by, we still didn't know. We were in a fire engine red little car. We didn't know why we weren't strafed because it looked like we were a fire truck or something. Nobody saw us, they ignored us. We went by Pearl Harbor up the hill to Haliva, drove into Haliva. I'm sorry, not Haliva, into Wheeler. Wheeler Field, our main base. And it, it was a shambles. There were 75 P-40s burning. We drove to my hangar. It was all aflame. The top had just, as we drove up the top, it melted and crushed in. And I looked, and some big old sergeant said, Lieutenant, he said, I got an airplane for you to fly. And I said, oh, great, where is it? We charged around this crumpled hangar. Up on the hillside was a biplane with two cockpits. I don't even know what it was. It hadn't moved in the months I'd been in Hawaii, or half a month. He said, there it is, Lieutenant, let's go. And I said, thank you very much, Sergeant, but I don't think I want to fly that thing. Jumped back in the car. We went on from Wheeler out to Haleiwa, about eight or ten miles. Came driving up to the gate that we had left the night before, and some idiot had put a barbed wire fence up. Well, I didn't see the barbed wire fence. I went right through it. 
I said to this poor guy whose car we'd commandeered, I said, I'm so sorry, I'll pay for it. He said, forget it, Lieutenant, forget it. Glad to help, jumped out, big old line chief saw me, grabbed me, handed me a parachute, handed me a helmet, said, son, I've got an airplane that's ready to go. Mind you, I've checked out in this P-36 the day before. I have one flight, okay? So he has my shoulder with his big hand, and I got my parachute, and some idiot ran up and handed me a naked 45. I mean, no holster, just a 45. That's a revolver, isn't it? No, it's an automatic. Oh. It's a pistol. A pistol. Oh, a pistol. <laughs> anyway, we're running... This P-36 out there about 150 yards away, and I hear some boom, 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 boom. And I look, and dust is spurting up around my airplane, and I don't like this at all. And I look over my shoulder, and here's a, I think it was a Val, fixed landing gear dive bomber, strafing my fighter plane. And I tried to stop this big line chief at the time. I was thinking, God, has he helped me carry my parachute, or is he making sure I don't run away and hide? I didn't know. But I can't stop him. He's 260 pounds. I finally said, I gotta stop him. I just threw both feet up and head up ahead of me. Remember, it was grass dirt. I dug my heels into the dirt and I stopped him. Turned around and that dive bomber was about 45 yards from me. So I started firing at him with my pistol. <laughs> One of the kids said, Lieutenant, you got him. <laughs> firing, I emptied the pistol. I looked at an empty smoking thing, I threw it up in the air, and I said, God in hell, I hit the canopy and I saw it craze, but he's not on fire or going down. He said, but Lieutenant, you hit him. I said, yeah, I hit him. Let's go hide. If he comes back, I don't want to be out in the middle. So we hid behind some bushes, and he didn't come back. He dove down over the hummock and disappeared out to sea. Maybe he crashed. Maybe, I don't know. We picked up all our marbles, our parachutes, our helmets, and went on out to the airplane. He hadn't touched it. And I got in the cockpit. And it had a peculiar starting system. Les might know what I'm talking about. I doubt if you do. It had an eight-gauge shotgun shell compression starter. Yeah. Okay. Was ducted into the bottom three cylinders of the radial engine. And if everything was right, it would kick the prop over three revolutions. You know, if you had the primer set and the mixture set and everything set, and your tongue was in the right corner of your cheek, it would fire. Well, I had six of those, and I fired five, and I had one left, and I jumped out. I handed this thing to this big line chief. I said, Sarge, you started. I'm all thumbs. It was a cranky starting system. So he jumped in. And I'm not sure whether I said damn him or good for him, but he started it. I'm really not sure, but he got it started. And he started to jump out, and I thrust him back in the cockpit. His eyes opened up like teacups like I'm going to make him fly it. He could fly. And I'd flown with him in the AT-6. I said, Sarge, just load the gun, turn on the switches, and turn on the gun sight. I don't know where the hell the switches are, and I've never loaded the gun in this airplane. So he did. He turned on the gun sight. He put the circuit breakers in for the firing mechanism and charged the gun, we had a 30 caliber and a 50 caliber machine gun firing through the prop, but we were on a gunnery camp, but 50 caliber ammo was too expensive, so we didn't have any. So I had a 130 caliber prop gun firing through the prop, my second flight at a P-36, 
And I went off to war over Pearl Harbor December 7th. Well, you took off. I took off, and I chased all over the island. The only people that ever shot at me were the people on the ground. Everybody on the ground shot at me with everything they had. I flew it half an hour, and I went back, and I landed, and I said, this is ridiculous. But I did land. You didn't ever see any Japanese I never saw a Japanese airplane in the air. Thank God, they'd have killed me. <laughs> but that was my introduction to combat. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. This oral history is part of the American Fighter Aces Association collection, and you can hear more oral histories from this collection now digitized on our website 24-7. There's a link in this episode's show notes. And we actually previously aired selections from other Fighter Aces oral histories in episode 14 of The Flight Deck. So you can check out that episode if you want to hear a more curated list of content. Thank you so much to Allie Lane, one of our museum's digitization specialists, for your help with all of this. She has worked for years on this project. You can learn more about the American Fighter Aces Association on their website, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes. And a quick tip, they have scholarships available for people going to college. You do not have to be a fighter ace to qualify, and they actively want more people to apply. So if you are someone who is going to college, this is a great scholarship to look into, and you can find that on their website. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying we'll see you out there, folks.